Axis Mundi. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco, and I'm here today with a new guest, someone who I'm so excited to have on Straight White American Jesus, and that is Sarah Stancorp. So, Sarah, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, thank you. So, you are the author of a new book called Disobedient Women, and this is what we're going to talk about today. It's a unique book. It's one that, that really talks about some of the scandals I think many people listening will be familiar with, but it does so from the perspective of the women who use the internet to call out the abuse and other things happening in their communities. So we'll get into that in a second, but before we do, let me just say that uh, you're a very accomplished and seasoned reporter. You write for places, your work is appear at the Washington Post Magazine, New York Times, Vogue, Marie Claire, Glamour. The Guardian, The Atlantic, CNN Money, Fusion. I mean, I can go on and on and on. There's no way to name all the places your work has been. And you've been nominated for several awards in June 2018, awarded a Society of Professional Journalists Excellence in Journalism Award, Best Community Issue Story Award for Rape Culture Lives Here, and so on and so on. So you've been writing about these things for a long time. Your book, Disobedient Women, just came out, and it really does dig into the women's story, the stories of the women who expose so many of the scandals that I think a lot of us are unfortunately familiar with. We're going to jump into those. Let me, let me stop and first ask about your own experience. This book and this set of stories really kind of touches on your own journey. What was the pathway for you to being the author of this book? And actually, before I even keep going, I should tell the listeners I have a little disorder this is how I always symptom. Brad is not making me cry. But it, anyway, I grew up with an alcoholic parents. And like many kids in that situation, I was scared a lot of the time. And for me, my faith and like turning to God was really my way of coping and my way of surviving. So that's one piece. Also, my family life being what it was made me eager to get out of my house. So I went to the library a lot. And I was a curious kid. And once they let me into the adult part of the library, the religion stacks were like where I lived. And for a long time, it was perfectly okay to be like a good Presbyterian or Methodist kid and reading about Hinduism. Like, I just wanted to open everyone believed in what they thought. I was super curious. So that's part of it. Up through high school, I had been a very mainstream, kind of middle-of-the-road Christian kid. And then I just sort of fell in with some evangelical kids. And I, I don't know if I can call it pure pressure, but it became very, very important for me to get it saved. And I didn't know what that meant. I was like, you don't do that. I don't talk like that. 
So it was like, I didn't know the magic words or if I said them, it didn't feel any different. I just, I understood that there were rules and I hadn't been taught the rules. And the more I spent time in those settings, I had to study the same different use and ends. I got fixated on like these rules that I had to follow. And once I cared so much about these rules, it changed my faith in a way that it, it wasn't flexible anymore. So I, I wouldn't say I personally was an evangelical, but my faith was like a lot of people in this country. Sideswipe I didn't. And that sideswiping was enough to change things kind of forever for that's such a poignant way to describe it. Uh, you know, a sideswipe. Here you are a Christian person. Here you are a Christian person in a way that your faith makes you feel like safe and that gets a refuge. And yet the kind of influence of evangelicalism on your life really, as you say, is, is in some ways an image of how it works uh, across the country. You know, you whether you like it or not, you come into contact with Evangelicals who are going to tell you that, oh, you're doing Christianity wrong or you're, you're not doing it right or uh, you're going to end up in hell if you're not saying the prayer and that kind of thing. Was it hard to dig into the material this deeply after your own experiences? I mean, both with uh, your, your home life and your, your father and with this kind of sideswiping of your religion? Yeah. So uh, the plan originally had not to talk about my own faith journey. As this, like, not even a B roll, like a D roll of stories throughout the book. And part of that was I wanted people outside of evangelicalism to feel like they had a hope in the book, too. So I was planning on using my own situation as a narrative device. And then it was like weeks, within a week. Um, learning, I was getting the book deal inside of the contract. My father got very sick and it became clear my mother was not well. And I became responsible for both of them. And then my father was dying and I was responsible for this parent that I loved. I also had these like very complicated emotions about. Um, and I think and it, it changed, it changed how I looked in abuse in a philosophical way, which was helpful. I definitely did not say and to include that part of my life in the book, but it was happening while I was writing the book. So there was, and the more I was considering kind of like what I had experienced, it struck me. That like, you know, I had this very scary childhood, but a lot of the people I've been interviewing for years, they had that too, or they had domestic violence and sexual assault. They, they had all these things, and they also had an additional layer that I didn't, and that was an understanding that what happened could be justified, that it was sanctioned by God. And they had this spiritual pain that was different than what I had. Like I had, they, I loved it, I lost it. They either stayed in it or had to flee 
that spiritual space because the thing that hurts the most became so aligned with God's will. And that just, that hurts in a way that I'm not sure how many other things can hurt that way. I, I think one of the things people will find in the book is that you are you are an author who who went about this project with deep empathy and a commitment to listening. And I think, you know, just sharing the little bit of your story you have here, listeners will really get an understanding of why you, you yourself had a complicated relationship and one that was, you know, full of pain, but also with someone you loved. And I think so many of the people in the book, if not all of them had a similar experience perhaps with parents, perhaps with loved ones, but also with the, the church and also with the faith that they had grown up in. I mean, it's easy to think of, of having a bad experience and wanting to just get out, but so many people in the church look at the church as a place of love and refuge, and, and yet when it's a place of pain and abuse, it's complicated. So let's jump into some of that. You know, you, you talk about uh, an organization or a denomination we've been hearing a lot about over the last month, and that's the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, you really give us this deep dive into uh, Krista Brown and the ways that the SBC sex abuse scandals were uh, revealed and reported on and ultimately came to light uh, and shook the very heart of the denomination. Can you just give us a, a little window into that story? I mean, obviously there's a lot much longer treatment in the book, but what is a kind of uh, entry point into what happened at the SBC? Something I think a lot of folks are interested in. Yeah. So for me, and I hope this is applicable to other people, it helps sometimes to understand these big, big institutions through like one person. Yeah. So one person that I think is emblematic of a lot of the struggle to deal with abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention is Krista Brown. She is an attorney who He's been kind of fighting this fight online longer than almost anyone, if not anymore. Um, she was, she describes being assaulted by her youth pastor between 1968 and 1969. Yeah, and at that time, it was framed as an affair. Now, this, her stories are really wrenching as it was happening. She, she was told, like, this is what God wants. You, you know, if, if you question me, you're questioning God. Like, in addition to all of just the inner conflict she had, she didn't want to be in this situation. But as she aged through life, she coded it as an affair, tried to move on. She was 16 when all of this happened with her adult married youth leader. And it took until her own daughter was 16 for her to really talk and say, if this happened to my daughter, I wouldn't call it an affair. And that's very common for a lot of social abuse survivors. It takes a well into middle age to really grab what was what happened and call it what it was. So at all origins, what is a protracted illegal case, but she is out of the civil suit and settlement for church, gave her a written apology, but she also received this nugget of information that shaped a lot of what came after it. And that was that the Baptist General Convention of Texas kept the list. Like, 
they had a list of who they probably accused the abusive pastors were. She just wanted that to be made public. Because if, if they were going to be scared, they might abuse the Lord else. The church, at least the next church, should know that I'm failing, should know. And she started pressing SBC in 2007 to make their, to make a list and make it public. We all unwanted out of an act of desperation and a little bit of faith that if I can show them, they'll see this is bad. Um, she started a blog called Stop Baptist Predators and created a own database from publicly available sources. And over a year, she got a list of 170 abstergers who could only accused or convicted. Meanwhile, she just go on FSBC and just get attacked and ripped apart. And I mean, you've seen this. It happened literally every day in social media. Anytime someone tries to tell a hard truth or even just a personal reality of abuse within the church context, the Bible on is immediate and is swift. Um, so that's what she lived through for years. And it, SBC didn't really take it too seriously until 2019 when the history of came out with its abusive series. Uh, so there's a couple things that, that really jump out to me about Krista Brown's story. One is this happens in the 1960s. I mean, we're talking over half a decade ago or half a, a century ago now. And, and here, Krista Brown has had the persistence to just, you know, as you say, once her daughter became 16, to, to really stay on um, this issue and not let it go. And it really shows the amount of work and labor and, and like absolute persistence it takes to like do this for half a century, you know, and to keep going. Uh, you know, I interviewed Robert Downen about the uh, the Houston Chronicle story. Friends, if you're listening and you and you want to know about what happened with the in-depth reporting from out of out of Texas on this issue, like look up my interview with Robert Downen. I also interviewed Jonathan Crone, who was at the SBC when a lot of this came to light. And you know, you're just sort of reminding everyone of the fact that um, the Southern Baptist Convention had a list of known predators, and they wouldn't release it. And they didn't. And you correct me if I'm wrong. They didn't do anything to get rid of those people out of the churches. Yeah. Right. So I tell it. So after after the exposition, um, there started to be increased like pressure from SBC messengers to like, do something. So there was uh, well, marching orders for their investigation that came out in 2022, and that's where it was revealed that all this time Krista was like demanding, demanding, demanding. Corners of other people who had been victimized within the Southern Baptist Church had been saying, like, make a list, make it public. That was a list. So, like, one of the uh, attorneys, the Urban General Council for SBC, who, who had nasty things to say about Krista, his own staff have been keeping a list starting the same year she approached SBC. And that was back to the 60s and included Brown's case. So there are these moments where years later you realize 
yeah, they were being heard by someone in there, but largely ignored and reviled. And that's like part of why the title of this book is Disobedient Women, because having the audacity to say, this is happening, this is wrong, you have to face this. They were treated as gender the bowels and spawns of state. Any mutations were they were being disobedient to the men in a position of authority. And that just on top of everything else they have to deal with. And Krista said, as the way she was treated by the SBC, is worse than the abuse itself. Oh. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I guess for me too, just again, to think about it over the course of Krista's life from 1968, 1969 to the 2020s is, uh, that's just something to behold in itself in terms of the fight and, and the resolve. Uh, a lot of folks, if we just switch tracks, uh, Slightly, a lot of folks are watching a documentary about a certain family that had 19 children oh. uh, c- called called the Duggars. And the Duggars have been part of American life for over a decade now. Uh, one of their sons is now infamous for his abuse of his uh, his sisters and so on. The Duggars never fully, I, in my knowledge, and I'm happy for you to correct me, uh, identified as part of the Quiverful movement. But so many of us who watched and paid attention have sort of said, you know, the book of James says it's about works and not faith. And, you know, it seems like everything you do is quiverful, even if you're not telling us you're part of quiverful. So where does, where do the Duggars, the quiverful movement and that whole nexus of, of conservative American Christianity fit into disobedient women? Yeah. Uh, so it's, I have these moments in my everyday life where I talk about what I'm studying. And most people have no earthly idea of what I'm talking about. And all of a sudden, and like everywhere you go, people are saying, have you watched Shiny Happy People? I guess I have. I watched it the day it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yes, there's a lot to say here. So on the quiverful front, that's a word a lot of people who act out quiverful and that means like producing as many children for the army of God as you possibly can. They don't like that work. Yeah. So you can all live it and do it. And then say, well, it's not me. So that's not unusual. Um, within the book, there's like one woman in particular who I spot like who read the books that you picked up at your home's conference that Encourage you, please have as many children as you can increase the population of Christians in this country with your womb. And even if you die trying, well, then you're a martyr from God. Yeah. So that's an element here. The other part of this is that ideas like this popular up by ministries like Bill Gothard's and yeah. it's kind of that floating head. They see it many times in shiny, happy people. Uh, so his ministry, Institute and Basic Life Principles, IBLP, was huge within the segment of American Christians. I had no earthly idea who he was, <laughs> but many conservative Christians 
all of um, his, there were his conferences, there were his, his seminar tapes came to their church. I had more than one source. I, he was, I, the evangelical cup. I mean, he, he had minutia that he cared about. He would have, and in his books, explain how you should wear your hair to be modest, how you should position your face. What? I mean, like, so many details, but toys. You it with God, oh, it was, you had a cabbage patch job. Like, there was so much that kind of wrapped his opinions around people. And the divers were kind of here the poster child for his movement. Um, what I think folks outside IBLP circles are now realizing is abuse within these families was not uncommon. But also that that uneven power structure that Gothard preached and kind of enforced throughout the ministry also put him in a position where he had the ability to um, hold, hold, do inappropriate things for us people. And a lot of that is also in this book. Um, if people are unaware of God or they may not have heard of the umbrella of authority, also called yeah. the umbrella of protection. But just so people are aware, it's this idea of an umbrella underneath, an umbrella of spotlight umbrella underneath, and way over top, you have God. And underneath that, you have maybe a pastor, then you have the father, then you have the wife underneath, and then children literally down underneath. And if you behave yourself and you follow all of those errors of authority, you're protected from Satan, which exists outside the umbrella. Yeah. Um, so the ability to question either your parent or someone like Gothard, who's basically next and Brandy's quiet, is really very small. And if you do question, you're seeing basically satanic attack. Um, and that's just, that was a lot of people extremely vulnerable. Bill Gothard is someone I think more people are being, are now aware of because of you know, shiny, happy people in the documentary and talk about these things. And I've seen a lot of folks on social media saying, I never knew, you know, Bill Gothard, who that was. And if you, if you're listening and you don't know, I mean, I, I would say you can watch the documentary. You can, uh, you can also think of Gothard as kind of like the James Dobson you've never heard of, uh, with perhaps an even more, well, hard to say, not going to get into the business here of judging who's more insidious. I'm going to just leave that alone and say, at least on par with James Dobson in terms of his uh, insidiousness, if not his influence. Um, would you give us just one minute on how did, you know, you talked about Krista Brown and just a, a half century of persistence and resolve to expose the SBC. What happened in this case, you know, just in brief, of course, there's way more in the book, but yeah. yeah. So, but essentially, until about 2011, 2012, there was a, a huge outcry in people who did have negative experiences and thought it maybe just happened to them. Um, but then there was a blog called Recovering Grace that first just bit in the story saying, hey, abuse happened in these families. Right. 
And then someone wrote in saying, oh, it happened at headquarters and it happened with the author. And there were enough details of her story that the advocates behind the blog had seen or seen Bishop's ISIS that they were in that story. And then a floodgate of it. And it was fascinating in a very disturbing way how consistent patterns of abuse and the, the patterns of young girls out of these conferences and from the headquarters but, um, and then their stories are just rather consistent from there. Um, once the blog blue thing was up, eventually there was um, a lawsuit against IVLP and against IVLP and Gothard and at a certain point the case just fell apart. Um, Gothard and his, I think Gothard's supporters were being very persistent in reaching out to the abusive parents of these folks who had come forward. And they got very scared. And for the case to go forward, they needed a couple of people still within statute of limitations. And that started to become complicated, and they just also wanted to move on. Yeah. Yeah, that's so much to say here. Just about the the pattern of abuse, the luring people to the headquarters, the the intimidation campaign. It's all in the book, but yeah, d- disturbing to say the least. You know, before we close here, I one thing we talk a lot about on the show, and I talk a lot about in my own work, is Christian nationalism. Uh, one of the things I think you do is try to show us that Christian nationalism is a lot of things, and one of them is patriarchal. It's her, it's hurtful to women. It's asymmetrical in its gender struck, gendered structure. How would you just briefly explain that to someone who doesn't see the connection? Hey, I think Christian nationalism is just God and country, people who love their, the United States and love Jesus. What's, how is that patriarchal? How could that hurt women? Yeah. Well, it's, it's just, it's sort of built into a logic model. So at first I was trying, telling, I actually drew a Venn diagram to try to understand where all these things overlap. Because there was gender, there was space, there was power, there was authority, there was Christian nationalism. And I realized they all share this logic of a power imbalance that diminishes a group of people and places them in a lesser category. Functionally, you have the same people preaching you know, women should be producing as many Christian babies as possible as part of their familial role and also the population issue with Christian. You have the same folks arguing Christian to homeschool well to quote, protect their kids from special education, but also doing so to raise up a generation of evangelical Christians for an important governmental role. You have the same folks who have emphasized slavery and encouraging strategic dominion over communities. You also have the same folks covering up abuse in order to protect the power and influence of ministries and churches. And I think in all of those cases, in patriarchy and in Christian nationalism, to me, the justification behind elevating men or elevating Christians over everyone else. It's kind of a weak position. Like there's plenty of evidence people live other ways. And I think 
because of that, when you push back either against Christian patriarchy or Christian nationalism, that's why you get these dramatic, major, angry, threatened responses because it is a weak power. That doesn't mean it doesn't cause damage. But the weak are that is often defended with violence and fear. It's one of the things that comes through in the book. And I think that people will probably walk into the book intuitively knowing, but will walk away having a very vivid understanding of, which is when Krista Brown calls out uh, the SBC or uh, really just will not stop calling for the release of the list, et cetera. When there are women talking about abuse and the ILBP, when there are people who are calling out these men uh, who are in power, the reaction is not, oh yeah, we'll think about that or we'll see. I mean, it is a violent, yes, like strong, we will destroy you kind of reaction. And, yes. you know, I think that's very clear in, in the work that you do because, you know, the, the book is really based on just such a, a model of deep listening and insight into the lives of the women who really exposed all of this and their bravery and courage. You know, one thing we haven't talked about, and I'll just, this will be my last question is, you know, the internet, uh, sometimes it's not great. We, you know, I don't know. It gives us things we don't necessarily need. Uh, uh, but is it safe to say that a lot of what has happened in the exposure of the abuse that you're discussing here is because the internet provided a forum for women to tell stories, to join in solidarity, to uh, expose those in power? Yes, absolutely. I think one of one of the things that's true about abuse is that it isolates a person. So whether it's because of fear or the abuser wants you to be alone so you can't tell a lot of people with these really hard experiences thought they were alone. But then they saw online, someone else had, oh my gosh, they almost have the same experience. And then as you start to reach a certain threshold and realize it's not just one or two, it's hundreds, thousands, it's millions of people, you stop thinking it's me. You stop thinking it's the person who did this to me. You start to question the institution. And I think that's been the natural evolution of this movement. And it's... It's frustrating. I think right back to your first second question, one of my motivations for this book is there's been great reporting, like people like me, Robert Towner, like there's loads of people who've gotten these stories. We wouldn't have known about them without the internet. We wouldn't have known about them without the hashtag. There are these podcasts that show, like, my eyes are far, my eyes are the whole of more to say all these shit Dramatic art. The bloggers were writing about that for years. There's no credit given to them. So it's like more free labor from women. I just, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I think that's, honestly, I think that's why, you know, they're, what am I trying to say? There's a lot of folks writing right now about deconstruction and about different aspects of the Christian nationalist. American landscape. I think what makes your book unique and essential reading is what you just said is like, 
we usually hear about this way down the, the line when there's a big expose and thank God for those. Those are good. Like, and, 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 but behind those exposés, rewinding decades were women who would just not give up. Even when no one would listen, even when they felt like they were just alone, when no one cared, when it was hopeless, um, they were like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stop. And, uh, you know, this book really goes back to that source rather than sort of, uh, you know, picking up down the road, uh, with the story. And I think that's where it's most powerful because you're really hearing it from their, uh, their voices. And it's different when it comes from the source itself and the, and, and the struggle itself rather than the results or just to look at the SBC and how they voted or something like that. So, yeah, well, first, thanks for writing this book. Thank you for, uh, just the, the, all of the work it took. Uh, and thanks for stopping by today. Where can people link up with you and find the book and see all the cool stuff you're doing? Oh, so this is an answer I should have thought about. And if it happens, I think just heading, heading to my website, sarahstancor.com. I've also some links there. Twitter's collapsing. I don't know. <laughs> Well, yeah, Twitter, who knows? We don't know yet. It looks like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk are going to have a MMA match to decide who gets to control the threads. So anyway, all right, friends, as always, find us on Straight White JC. Find me at Bradley Onishi. or uh, an indie show. We do this three times a week. So if you're so inclined and can think about it, find us on PayPal or Patreon or Venmo. Our Patreon includes a Discord server and uh, our newsletter. You can find us on Substack. Uh, and uh, subscribe to our our, uh, weekly post there. Other than that, we'll be back later this week with uh, It's in the Code and the Weekly Roundup. But for now, we'll say thanks for listening. Have a good day. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.